Acts of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Well, happy graduation day to those who just graduated or are about to graduate. Um, and happy Proverbs 31 day to the rest of us as we are all in the school of wisdom together. We've been learning our way through the book of Proverbs. We've been learning about wisdom, uh, which is the skill of living well in God's world. And we are approaching the end of this book. We're going to come back to the rest of Proverbs 31 next week. In fact, we're going to come back to the part of Proverbs 31 that most of us think about when we think about Proverbs 31 next week. When we think of Proverbs 31, we think about this poem about an excellent wife uh, that begins in Proverbs 31, verse 10. But most of us overlook the beginning of Proverbs 31, the words of King Lemuel. This is an interesting passage that we're going to pay attention to uh, as we uh, as we come close to the end of the book of Proverbs. And I think it's here at the end of the book of Proverbs on purpose. It kind of answers a question, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? What is a good, well-lived life all about? What is a great life? What are you going to do with the rest of your life? One of the rallying cries in America today is YOLO, Y-O-L-O. You only live once, which is a motto that basically means you might as well get all of the fun that you can out of today. The assumption of the YOLO lifestyle is that the good life, a well-lived life, is one in which you're free to pursue joy through pursuing your own personal desires. About a year ago, um, many of us watched a documentary called The Last Dance. It's a documentary about the Chicago Bulls in the legendary 1997 to 1998 NBA season while they were on their way to winning their unrivaled second three-peat as world champions. We have any Bulls fans? You want to get out your little woohoos? All right. And right in the middle of that legendary 97 to 98 season, one of their superstar players, Dennis Rodman, took his chance to be king for a day. In an unexpected move for a star athlete, he took off two days in the middle of the season. No practices, no games. He took off two days to do whatever he wanted. He flew to Vegas. He partied his days away, surrounded by women and lots of alcohol. I wonder how many people watched the last dance and watched Dennis Rodman 
playing the part of king for a day, watched the part of Dennis Rodman doing whatever he wanted. And I wonder how many people thought that's what it looks like to live the good life. That's what it looks like to be great. That's what it looks like to really live life to the full. That's what it looks like to really be happy. I wonder how many people watched that and thought, you know, I kind of wish that could be me. Now, of course, for you, the draw may not exactly be toward parties with women and alcohol. There are hundreds of different ways to live a YOLO lifestyle. But just like Dennis Rodman, many of us assume that you're living the great life. You're living it to the full when you get to do whatever you feel like doing whenever you feel like doing it. But it raises a question, is that really the good life? Is that really a life well lived? Is that really what you want to do with the rest of your life? How do you live a great life? Proverbs 31 helps us answer that question. But before we get to the answer, let's notice how this passage introduces itself to us in verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that these are the words of, quote, King Lemuel. This is interesting because in the Bible, there is no record of somebody named King Lemuel. So who is this fella? Some people suppose this is wisdom, maybe from a king who is not from Israel or Judah. It's possible, I suppose. Some people suppose this is an unknown childhood nickname for another biblical king, maybe even an unknown childhood name for Solomon. I think, however, the simplest answer is to assume that kind of like the woman, the excellent wife in the second half of Proverbs 31, this King Lemuel is, uh, is kind of a prototype person, kind of an example, a fictional character rather than a specific person. In our culture, sometimes girls talk about finding Mr. Right. Who is Mr. Right? Well, in one sense, Mr. Right is nobody. He's a fictional character. He's an, an, an invention, uh, a prototype human being. But in another sense, Mr. Right is whoever is right for you. You see what I'm saying? And in a similar way, when we understand King Lemuel in this way, I think he makes more sense. Uh, the word Lemuel in the Hebrew language means something like devoted to God. And so like Mr. Wright, a fictional character who's right for you, King devoted to God, King Lemuel, is a prototype great person. A prototype figure of royalty. A prototype of somebody who is living his life to the full. Living a great life to the glory of God. In one sense, he's a made-up king. But in another sense, he's a made-up king that anybody with responsibility should aspire to be like. 
We should all want to be a little bit like this godly, great king. But this wisdom that we read here isn't originally even from him, right? What he gives us when we listen into the wisdom of king devoted to God, King Lemuel, he begins in verse 1 by pointing out this is an oracle or a strong teaching that his mama gave to him. In other words, we can kind of visualize this like we're showing up at the TED Talk of King Devoted to God. And King Devoted to God begins his TED Talk by saying, I want to share with you what my mother taught me. It adds a degree of credibility to it. You could imagine the opportunity to hear a TED Talk from King Caspian or a TED Talk from King Aragorn or a TED Talk from any number of other royal and great, epic, legendary kings. This great, extraordinary, legendary king steps up to the microphone in his TED Talk and says, I want to share with you what I learned about true greatness from my mom. I want to share with you what my royal mother taught me. And what is it that the royal mom has to say for us as readers of Proverbs so that we can learn about living a great life ourselves? The first big chunk of the royal mother's teaching is found in verses 2 through 7. And she begins by explaining that if you want to be great, there are some things you won't be devoted to. Look with me, if you would, at verses 2 and 3. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? You hear the kind of urgency from deep in her heart for her son's future. What are you doing? And then verse 3, do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who would destroy kings. And so from the beginning of her teaching about true greatness, she's saying that if you want to be great, you won't be devoted to indulging sexual temptation. Now, Up to this point in the book of Proverbs, we've seen two themes emphasized about sex in the book of Proverbs. First, There's the theme that sex is a very good gift from God meant to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. And so you could go home later and look at Proverbs chapter 5 verses 18 and 19 to see that theme very clearly. Be intoxicated. Speaking to a married son, go and be intoxicated in your wife's love. There's a positive view of sex within the context of marriage in the book of Proverbs. But there's a second theme which is to say that the temptations of sex can lure us away from true life. Which is important for us to hear because we live in a world that keeps telling us that true life and true satisfaction and true fulfillment and true happiness are found when you are free to gratify your own desires, whatever direction your desires might tug you in. 
But the book of Proverbs speaks kind of a countercultural word that we need to hear. And it warns us that the temptations of sex can actually lure us away from true life. And so Proverbs chapter 5 verses 20 and 22, right after the positive view of sex that was shared a verse or two earlier in Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5.20 says, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And the embrace, or why would you embrace the bosom of an adulteress? The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. And so what Proverbs is saying throughout this book is that the, the temptations of sex will promise us life. They will promise us fulfillment. They will promise us satisfaction. But there's a bait and switch. After promising true satisfaction, very often the temptations of sex, instead of satisfying us, will ensnare us. Instead of leading us to true freedom and true life, they'll lead us into a kind of slavery. A loss of freedom. We can be ensnared by our own sexual desires, the book of Proverbs teaches We think that freedom is the path to true life, freedom to do whatever we feel like. But the book of Proverbs warns us that when we do whatever we feel like, very often we get ensnared in the process. The story of King Solomon very clearly demonstrates this theme if you're familiar with the history of the Old Testament. But recent examples certainly confirm that as well. So many stories, so many stories of many powerful men in recent years from Harvey Weinstein in Hollywood to political leaders from either side of the aisle to Christian megachurch pastors like Jack Schapp. And in so many cases, the stories are now only beginning to be revealed We don't even have the full story out there yet. As Jesus taught, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be known. Luke 12, 2. These things remind us far more than we tend to realize sexual sin can entangle us. It can ensnare us. It can trap us. These remind us maybe of what the royal mother is teaching. They confirm that the royal mother of Proverbs 31 is more right than we realize. If you want to live a truly great life, don't give your strength over towards sexual temptations. That can end up destroying even kings. According to the royal mother's teaching, if you want to be great, you shouldn't be devoted to indulging sexual temptation. And beyond that, she also teaches us that if you want to be great, you shouldn't be devoted to indulging in too much alcohol. As we see in verses, uh, I think it's uh, four and following. Look there with me if you would. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for great ones to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery 
no more. Now, what is the royal mother saying here? She's teaching us that if you want to be great, you shouldn't be devoting yourself to indulging in too much alcohol. It's not that she's entirely opposed to alcohol in every way. Just as the book of Proverbs is not opposed to alcohol in every way, just as the Old Testament is not opposed to alcohol in every way, just as the New Testament is not opposed to alcohol in every way. After all, our Lord Jesus drank wine at the Last Supper, right? After all, you might remember that Paul, writing to Timothy, said, take a little wine for your stomach. The Bible is not anti-alcohol in this blanket kind of way. But what the royal mother is saying here is that there can be consequences that you don't yet foresee by giving yourself over to living this kind of selfish lifestyle that goes with devoting yourself to too much alcohol. There can be consequences you won't now see that you won't now feel are real if you give yourself over to a lifestyle of drunkenness. Um, you've heard about mothers against drunk driving. This is a thing. It was a thing when I was a kid, at least. As one Old Testament scholar has pointed out, Proverbs 31 shows us the genesis of mothers against drunk ruling. The royal mother is pointing out, she's not saying no alcohol ever for anybody, But she's saying if you give yourself to drunkenness, if you follow your gut into saying, I feel like drinking more and more and more, and I feel like washing all my sorrows away tonight with wine or with beer, she's pointing out you're not thinking about how you're going to wake up tomorrow morning. And as much as every alcoholic thinks they're a functioning alcoholic who does just fine the next day, the royal mother is pointing out here, there will be consequences eventually in your ability to make wise and good decisions for the sake of those you are supposed to be serving. And then we get to these fun verses in 6 and 7, sometimes posted on Christian college students' walls. Let them drink and forget their poverty. And college students are always like, I'm poor, so let me drink, right? But that's not exactly the purpose of these verses coming from the royal mother's mouth in this context. We need to see these verses as kind of soaked in irony. Maybe even coming across in a sarcastic tone. Look, drinking is for people who are dying. It's not for those who are seeking to live truly great lives. Drinking your sorrows away is what we is what people do when they are on their deathbed. It's not what you do when you're thinking about how you want to live life to the full. She's teaching with a kind of irony, with a kind of sarcasm almost in these verses. And she's warning us that if you want to be great, you won't be devoted to indulging too much in alcohol just as you won't be devoted to indulging in sexual temptations. You see, there's kind of this theme that's running through these these verses from 2 through 7. She's pointing out, the, the royal mother is explaining this first big idea that true greatness is, that the truly great ones are not devoted to serving themselves. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? How, how will you live a good life? How will you live life well? How will you live life to the full? 
True greatness is not discovered by indulging in your own desires. It's not discovered by serving yourself. In contrast with that, the royal mother points out this second big idea in this passage. She points out that true greatness is discovered in serving those in need. Notice what she says in verse 8. Open your mouth. Now, I'm just going to pause there for one second just so we notice the contrast. She's been talking about drinking, right? And now she says, open your mouth for the mute. It's kind of a contrast. Instead of opening your mouth for the poor, P-O-U-R, she's saying, open your mouth for the poor, P-O-O-R, right? Clever, I know. Thanks for your chuckles. Here's what she says. Open your mouth for the mute, for the poor. Open your mouth for the rights of those who are destitute. Open your mouth. Speak up, in other words. Open your mouth. Speak up and judge righteously. These ideas of justice and righteousness often go together in the Hebrew Bible. Open your mouth. Speak up for the cause of justice and righteousness. Open your mouth and speak up in order to defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Here's what the royal mother is teaching us about a truly great life. She's teaching us that true greatness is devotion to serving those in need. The book of Proverbs has shown us in a variety of ways that concern for the poor, concern for those with needs, concern for justice and righteousness in our community, these are part of wisdom. And we've talked about this before, how the book of Proverbs fits in the Bible, right? The Bible as a whole, from beginning to end, is telling us this huge story of redemption from uh, from the Garden of Eden all the way to the last day. It's telling us this huge story from before the creation of the heavens and the earth to our life together with Christ forevermore when the kingdom is fully established. The, the Bible as a whole is telling us this huge story of redemption which does not ignore the brokenness of this world including our sins. And our fallenness and our mistakes, including evil and injustice, including things that are broken and not the way they're supposed to be. The Bible pays clear attention to those things, but the Bible also tells us that those things will be dealt with by our God who is full of compassion from His very heart and who is devoted to justice and who one day will bring about justice. The Bible as a whole is telling us this huge story about the redemption of all things. About true justice which will be established once for all time in this increasing measure on that day. And yet here in the middle of the Bible we've got the book of Proverbs. And the picture we've used is that in the book of Proverbs, the huge story of redemption, if you think of it as kind of this massive thing with huge gears, the gears of the story of redemption reach all the way down into the cracks and crevices of real life where we live today. The huge story of restoration and redemption, it reaches down to the street level, it reaches down to where we live our lives today. 
And here in Proverbs 31, as we get this picture of the royal mother teaching about how should we live the rest of our lives, about what does it mean to live a great life, the book of Proverbs is telling us that if we think about how we want to live the rest of our lives, if we think about wanting to live lives of true greatness today, that should involve something that kind of rhymes with the kind of justice that that our Lord is, is going to bring about. It should rhyme with the heart of our Lord Himself who is full of compassion toward us in our needs. And the book of Proverbs presses that down into the details in this kind of surprising way. The book of Proverbs doesn't give us each this assignment, go and fix every problem in your society. I mean, that would be cool if we could do that, (laughs) but we can't. We can't go and fix every problem. We can't go and none of us will be able to bring about perfect justice once for all times. But notice this. Proverbs 31 gives us an assignment that each of us is capable of. Open your mouth. Say something. Speak up on behalf of the mute, which is to say on behalf of those who don't have their own voice. Will you speak up for them? Will you open your mouth and will you speak up for those who are kind of at rock bottom, feeling destitute today? Maybe you can't fix every problem in society, but will you open your mouth and speak up for the cause of justice and righteousness? Will you open your mouth and will you defend the rights of those who are poor and those who are in need? In His design for us as a church, God has placed many different gifts in the body of Christ. It's a wonderful thing. And so walking this out might look a little bit different for one person or another because of certain gifts or because of certain opportunities. It might look different for you than it looks for somebody down the pew from you today. But for all of us as disciples of Jesus, for all of us who are redeemed by the Lord whose heart is overflowing with compassion, we're called to follow Him in lives of compassion that are devoted to this kind of thing, opening our mouths to speak up and at least say something. To speak up and at least say something for those who can't speak for themselves. To speak up and at least say something for those who are at rock bottom. To speak up and at least say something on behalf of righteousness and justice. To speak up and at least say something to defend the rights of the poor and the needy. There are many ways to seek justice, but this simple one is surprisingly important. Some of you may be familiar with uh, John Perkins. He's an elder statesman of the African-American church today. He's been pastoring for many years. He's labored through a life. He's now in his 90s and he's labored through his life on behalf of the civil rights movement and in founding countless not-for-profit organizations to improve neighborhoods and communities, especially in the South where he grew up. He's invested his life in changing cities and communities in profound ways. And his last book that he wrote is called One Blood. 
And he wrote it to the church, kind of self-consciously realizing as he's getting older, this would be the last book he'd be able to write. And I read that book wondering if the action calls would involve each one of us starting our own not-for-profit organizations. If the action call would involve each of us remedying everything in society. I was surprised how simple some of the first gear steps are if we pay attention to the advice of John Perkins. Here's a man of action, a man who has devoted himself to improving his city and improving his community. And yet here's where he recommends we begin. He says, if we have been silent and have chosen to ignore the mistreatment of others in the past, we should begin to speak up. Isn't that kind of profoundly simple? John Perkins were here. He would tell us that justice matters and he would call us to care about the, the poor and those with needs in our community. And we say, Dr. Perkins, how do we do that? After all of your years of ministry and after all of the not-for-profits you've established, where do we begin? Well, if you've been silent and you've chosen to ignore the mistreatment of others in the past, maybe you should begin to speak up on behalf of the poor and the needy. Dr. Perkins' advice sounds a lot like the advice of the royal mother as she gives us wisdom for living truly great lives ourselves, lives which are not for not lived for our own self-indulgence, but lived for the sake of serving others and specifically for the sake of serving those in need. We want to build a church culture here at Redeemer that cares about things that the Bible cares about. We want to build a church culture here at Redeemer that cares about the kind of wisdom that God reveals here in His Word. How are we going to build a church culture like that? Or more specifically for you or for me, how do we get this stuff in gear? How do we learn to be people who will open our mouths and speak up on behalf of those in need. How do we learn that? Let me give you a couple of pastoral recommendations. A first pastoral recommendation for us is that we need to care about the needs of others. Is that too simple? <laughs> we need to actually care about the needs of others. Otherwise, we won't open our mouths and speak up about them. We need to care about the needs of others. We need to teach our kids to care about the needs of others in this broken world that we live in. As I was reading this text this week and thinking about it, I just found myself considering, what are my kids learning from me about the needs of others in this world? What are my kids learning from my perspective about the needs of others in my community? What is my life teaching them? What are we teaching and modeling for one another here in our church culture? One of the things that makes it challenging right now to care about the needs of others is that ideas like justice and ideas like caring about the poor and ideas like caring about those in need, they ring in our 2021 American ears as political issues. And so some of you have already been listening to me for 20 minutes or something like that, trying to figure out, is he a Democrat or a Republican? Because if he sounds Republican enough, I'll like what he says. Or if he sounds Democrat enough, I'll like what he says. Or if he sounds fill-in-the-blank enough, 
Basically, if he sounds like me, I'll like what he says, right? Isn't that what we all do? But we need to listen in a slightly different way as disciples of Jesus and as members of the church of Jesus Christ. We need to kind of lower our level of allegiance to political parties and we need to kind of simmer down our devotion to certain ideologies, whether they be ideologies of the left or of the right. And we need to lower our allegiance to those things so that we can raise up our allegiance to this book, so that we can raise up our allegiance to our Redeemer even more highly. And so that we can raise up our level of allegiance to the things that our Lord and Redeemer cares about. And so that we can link arms and unite together in saying, look, the problems are complex. I don't know how to fix all poverty in America. Can I admit that and still be okay? I don't know how to fix all the problems of poverty in America. But you know what? You don't know either. We don't know how to fix all of the problems in America. We don't know how to establish justice in all the best ways. The problems are complex. And you know what? The kingdom of God is too big to be constrained in any one political party, in any nation, even America. The kingdom of God is too great for its ideas to be constrained, for its values to be constrained by one political party. And so we need to lower our allegiance to other things and we need to lift up our allegiance to God and His ways. And we might find ourselves kind of struggling sometimes in saying, I don't know who to vote for or I don't know what political things to advocate for and maybe I see it one way and maybe you see it a little differently. Maybe someone else uh, in your small group sees it a little bit differently. But we should all care and care deeply about things that God in His wisdom cares about and that God in His Word instructs us to care about like the needs of others like the needs of the poor and the hurting in our community and in our nation and in the world around us. Sometimes, unfortunately, it's easier to criticize and critique than it is to actually take steps forward of care and compassion. About 50 years ago, there was an um, influential Christian leader named Rene Padilla, Carlos Rene Padilla, Grew up in uh, Latin America. He was Ecuadorian himself, but I think he grew up in Colombia on the mission field. Came to Wheaton College, my alma mater, and studied there. Uh, went to study with F.F. F. Bruce and got a doctorate in New Testament studies. Was a close friend of Billy Graham, an important leader in the Luzon movement of missions and world evangelization, if you're familiar with that. About 50 years ago, Rene Padilla wrote an article in Christianity Today, an article addressing primarily American evangelical Christians. And he spent most of that article as a biblical scholar critiquing something called liberation theology. Now, you don't need to worry about what liberation theology is. Let's put it like this in simple terms. It was a, a movement that was really popular in Latin America about 50 years ago and still certainly has some influence today, but not as much as it did then. And so he wrote this long article critiquing liberation theology and some of the ideas that were taught by liberation theologians. But then at the end of that article, Rene Padilla wisely kind of, I can almost see his face turning to the American evangelicals reading his article, most of whom would have cheered for him as he critiqued liberation theology. And he asks a profound question. He says, 
Where is the evangelical theology that will propose a solution with a firmer basis in God's word? You see what he's saying, right? It's one thing to critique how other people are talking about justice, but how are we as Bible-informed evangelicals leading the way in justice ourselves? You've heard the old adage, I like my way of doing evangelism better than your way of not doing evangelism. (laughs) That article was Rene Padilla's way of saying to the American evangelical church, I like some ways of doing justice better than your ways of not caring about justice. Now, once again, society-wide problems are complex and there's room to think through those issues and to disagree. But here's the first pastoral recommendation I want to make for us. Do we actually care about the needs of others? How much do we care? Are our hearts broken appropriately for the needs of others around us? That's one kind of pastoral recommendation for us in building a culture that will speak up for the rights of the poor and the needy. We need to care about the needs of others. The second thing that I think we need to do uh, is we need to, uh, we need to care about needy people around us. Specific needy people in our community. In other words, not only do we need to kind of separate this from political ideas and say this is the thing we're paying attention to, not that podcast or that YouTube video, this is the thing we're paying attention to. That's the first thing we need to do. But the second thing we need to do is we need to actually move toward other people here in our community and we need to seek to as we develop a growing concern for others and their needs, we need to actually speak up for real people that we really know. What does that look like? How do we teach our kids this kind of thing? Um, I was reflecting on this this week and I was thinking of my wife, Katie, um, and uh, an experience a few years ago when we had three little kids at home. And some of you have more than three little kids at home. Uh, we, have, we have five kids, but when they're little, it's different, right? It's just, it's exhausting, it's taxing, it's tiring. And in that season, um, we signed up to be a friendship partner family with, um, with a family that was immigrating with refugee status, uh, a Burmese family who was arriving in the United States, spoke very little English, had been through tremendous amount of suffering for years leading up to arriving in the United States, and then they're kind of dropped in the city of Aurora. Good luck. So we signed up with World Relief to be friendship partners. When I say we, um, I mean, I did the training, but Katie did all the work, right? (laughs) Katie did the heavy lifting in this one, and they paired us with a family that also had little kids, kind of the ages of our little kids, and so very often that family would just come over and hang out in our backyard, and it was just a blessing for those kids to just get to play in our yard, and Katie would try her hardest to cross language barriers and try to understand understand what her friend was saying and what her friend was describing, and they really began to form a friendship together together. It wasn't just a term friendship partner. They, they really began to form this friendship together. And one time while they were hanging out in our backyard, Katie, uh, Katie came to understand that one of their young kids had a significant vitamin deficiency that the doctor had told them about. But the mom didn't really understand what that meant, which let's just all say, I get it. 
If you dropped me somewhere in Southeast Asia where I knew very little language and left me there with four or five little kids and said, good luck taking care of them. And I go to the doctor and the doctor says things to me in a language I don't understand and hands me a little piece of paper. How am I going to figure out what that means or what to do next? Right. And so Katie hears there's this significant vitamin deficiency that uh, that this kid has and mom who's struggling with the language and struggling to adapt to a new culture and all these things, doesn't know what to do next. So what do you do? I think Katie set an example of what it can look like at the street level to open your mouth for neighbors in need. She just volunteered to go back to the doctor's office with her friend. And she used her voice, which she could use in English, (laughs) to arrange for a follow-up consultation, I think, with one of the nurses who could explain what had been found out at the last appointment. She used her voice to schedule a follow-up consultation and to get another chance for her friend to learn more about what was going on. And she interpreted from her friend to the nurse more of the story of what was really going on with this child. I don't think the medical staff were able to understand her either. So she's using her voice to now explain this is what's really going on with this kid. And with now more details and more information, they're able to communicate to Katie. And Katie's able to interpret it and try to explain it back to her friend. And she's able to go to the pharmacy and actually buy some of the the vitamins and nutrients that this child needed in order to thrive. I mean, this is one tiny little example of two moms driving around West Aurora with 10 little kids in two cars. (laughs) It's one little tiny illustration. It did not solve all of the world's justice crises. But it's one small illustration of a disciple of Jesus saying, I care about my neighbors in need and I care enough about my neighbor in need today that I'm going to actually take some time out of compassion, out of love, moved by the kind of love I've experienced from the Lord. I'm going to take some time out of my day to use my voice to speak up on my friend's behalf and try to help her. I wonder how we can grow in seeking to actually help others with real needs around us, to actually spend time with them, to actually move toward them, to actually get to know them more. For some of us, maybe becoming a friendship partner with World Relief is a great opportunity. That's one connection that we've celebrated and loved in our church family for 10 years. There are opportunities at the Pregnancy Information Center over on Galena that are helping moms who are experiencing crisis pregnancies or families who need some help. Maybe they get together once a week and study the Bible. They get together regularly for classes on what it means to be a new mom or how to handle a budget, right? And so maybe there are ways you could serve with World Relief, maybe with Pregnancy Information Center. The Lord knows how many guys in this church have served brothers at rock bottom moments in their lives by by showing up at Wayside Cross and being a mentor and just giving an hour a week to open their mouth and talk with them about the word and talk with them about life and then sometimes to go and open their mouth uh, outside of Wayside and help them find a job and speak on their behalf and, and say, this is somebody I know, this is somebody I can vouch for him. He's going to be a reliable employee. I know so many in this church have invested innumerable hours in foster care, in adoption, in caring for neighbors in kind of spontaneous and unexpected ways, 
Many of us have served in a variety of other ways as well. I'm not trying to limit the menu for us and say there's only five ways you can do this. But here's what I want to suggest. If we want to create a culture here at Redeemer that reflects something of the story of redemption and something of God's heart of compassion, God's heart for justice and God's heart for the needy, we're going to need to actually care about the needs of those in need and we're going to actually need to move toward those in need around us and begin building relationships and begin speaking up on their behalf. But there's another thing I want to, a final thing I want to encourage us toward if we're going to build a church culture that really reflects what Proverbs 31 is teaching us here about being a church that cares about the needy. That final thing is, I think we need to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ Himself. See, many centuries after Proverbs 31 was written, there arrived another king devoted to God. Another king, Lemuel, who came and lived in poverty and lowered himself to love and serve those in need in very specific and often personal ways. Another King Lemuel who came to give his life as a ransom for us to resolve our greatest need forevermore. That King we know as King Jesus. And in in Mark 10.45, we hear the words of Jesus For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. See, here's the new definition of true greatness that the Bible consistently gives us over and over. True greatness, living your life well, living your life to the full, is not about being served. It's not about fulfilling your selfish desires. It's about serving others. A truly great life lived like the life of our truly great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is a life lived not to get, but to give and to serve. And so the New Testament reflected back on the life of Jesus like this saying, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. See, the Gospel of Jesus Christ changes our perspective of everything. It changes our view of ourselves. And it reveals to us that we are needy people ourselves. And it changes our view of others around us because now when we look at other people in need, we don't see them as other or different or lesser. We see in them a reflection of ourselves. And the gospel of Jesus Christ most certainly changes our view of Jesus Christ, our truly great King, who though He was rich, became poor. And it leads us, it melts our hearts. In such a way that we find ourselves singing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, became poor for me? 
This is the message of the royal mother in Proverbs 31. A truly great life is not a life lived for your own self-fulfillment. A truly great life is a life lived like the life of Jesus Christ to serve others and especially to serve those in need. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.